So we're back for our last kind of session on learning to lament. And if you haven't been here for the last three weeks, it's super important that you go back and listen to the last three messages we've been doing on this skill and on this ability on learning how to lament. So, uh, so, so last weekend especially, I encourage you to go back and check out because that was our part one to, through talking through the Book of Lamentations, and we're really going to be focalizing, getting a little bit more narrow on a specific chapter in Lamentations um, this weekend. And so you want to go back and listen to that in order to fully understand what we're going to talk about today. But what's awesome is that uh, really what we're going to be doing in this message is we're looking at the promises and the nature of God. That if God is who the Bible reveals him to be, if what the Bible says about God is true, then we have hope. And that is a reality we want to hold on to. No matter what suffering, no matter what pain, no matter what distress we are in, we have hope. And we learned this last weekend that in the midst of crisis, one seriously reflects and learns the most about God's character and his relationship to his people in those crises, in those um, aspects of suffering. And so lament, as we've been learning, is an appeal to God that's based on the confidence of his character and on his promises. And so we've been learning as we walk into this year how to sit in the mess and be reminded that God has made a way to move forward. And we all desire that. We all want to move forward. And we all can move forward. And this last section focusing in on Lamentations 3 is going to help us in that. And just to give you a quick review of the stuff we talked about last weekend, we noted the power that's in the book of Lamentations on a whole, looking at the overview of it and the structure of it. And we talked about how there's an immense poetry of pain, that Israel penned this because they had gone through the greatest devastation in their history to date. And everything they knew and loved had been wiped out by the Babylonians, an enemy that God had brought judgment on them to because of their rebellion. And there was an intense emotional grief and pain. And Pastor Lance and I were talking about this after last weekend because we were talking about, and he kind of wrote this all out even, about how do we kind of resonate with that? How do we allow that to apply into our situation? And it's, you have to create almost your own hypothetical that if you imagine that Argentina waged war on America and they come and they demolish us financially, but they let us remain and live as Americans, but they take all of our best stuff and they leave us economically wasted. And we become so mad that we later try to fight back and lead a revolution and it doesn't work. And they come back with a military force, they take out our military, they starve us out to desperation until we bow our knees fully to them and pledge allegiance to Argentina. They deport a bunch of, of our best people, they set up shop, they raise their flag, they change the language, the signs, the way of life, they obliterate our culture and they wipe us off the face of the earth. What would the songwriters and the poets write if that was what was happening? Now, some of you that might watch some of the streaming channels, uh, there's a whole TV show called The Man in the High Castle that's almost loosely based off of this exact theory. But what would our greatest musicians say to highlight our pain, our desperation, our loss. And that's where you have to realize that this is the creatives emotionally guiding us through processing what we're going through. And you have to just think about how many times that you've been driving or you sat and you heard a song and it said exactly what you were thinking. And it maybe even helped you discover more about what you were feeling. That demonstrates the power that can come when somebody is able to shape and bring sound to our complex emotions. Lamentations is exactly that, and we kind of introduced that last weekend. But we also talked about another aspect, the beauty of its design. 
and how it's written in this A to Z acrostic where they would go through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so chapters one, chapter two, chapter four, go through the, the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gamal, Dalet, and they go through all of it. Chapter five drops that entire acrostic, but you get a little mini version in the end. And we talked about the purpose of that and how it was meant to facilitate memory, but it also helped us make sure that our grief was complete and that despair and grief were expressed completely, that our pain was channeled, that we were able to cover the whole ground and organize grief. And we talked about how when you go through that cycle and then you go through that cycle and then you go through that cycle that you come to this realization that you've covered that ground and you can move forward. And if you weren't here last weekend, I encourage you to go back and listen to that because we laid all that out. But this structure, it propels us forward rather than leaving us wallowing in what we're doing and what we're feeling. It showed us that mourning has its limits and that there is hope. Well, this weekend, we're focusing in on the difference that we see in chapter three. Because although one, two, and four have that structure and chapter five drops it, chapter three takes that acrostic, that A to Z, and it does it three times. So you have this large, triply full acrostic with a different mood to it and different names. And each section within it, it moves us to read on, to not stop. But it veers from the pattern that the book has already set. And it does that purposefully. It brings an interrupt, an interrupt that we need so much because this is the place where hope rises within the cycle. And it shows us, it reminds us that lamenting, expressing your grief and your anguish and your frustration has a purpose. It gets us somewhere and it moves us into a place where we know that God made a way to move forward. Now, Pastor Lance had spent a little bit of time reflecting on some pieces of just that reality. And I think he wrote down some amazing stuff because he talked about why cycling through our pain like this helps because emotional work is much different than intellectual work. Our head functions different than our hearts. And our, and our hearts don't always believe everything our minds tell it to believe. Our, our hearts are slower processors. So every time you go through these cycles that Lamentation's bringing, especially in chapter three, every time it cycles by, you're able to grab another piece and absorb it and let it sink in, sink in and become true for us. And so this reflection, it allows our mindset to alter, that we realize there's some things we can accept and that we can't handle everything at once, that if we were to take in all the stuff that's going on in our lives and try to let it all come into our heart at the same time, it would overload it. And that's when people start shutting down. That's when we start distancing ourselves, numbing ourselves to what's going on around us. But we need to break these things down so we can fully understand what we're hearing, what's being said. And so Lance writes about how this meditation allows expansion. That when we reflect and slow the process down, there's different aspects to the situation and they have room and time to enter in to our hearts. Because when we hurt, we can only see God in one dimension. Because we know he's in charge, but in our suffering and in our anguish, we feel like he's allowing us to go through this. He's letting it happen. But when we slow down enough to meditate, to focus, we start seeing those other perspectives, the other aspects of how God functions and how he has worked in other situations and how he is working in situations. And we remember the other parts 
of his nature. We slow down and stop talking. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Lamentations chapter three. We're gonna go through all 66 verses, although we're gonna jump over a couple pieces. But there's a lot here that we wanna see. And I'm gonna read the first line while you're turning there. Don't worry if you're still getting the Lamentations three. But it starts by saying, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, of God's wrath. And it starts by changing the, the name in this chapter. So whereas before it's talked about Jerusalem being a voice and the people of Israel being a voice, now it's a singular man. But unlike Greek, where Lance always tells us that the word all in Greek always means, it doesn't work like that in Hebrew here because the word man is actually a different word for man. It doesn't just use the regular word man. It uses this word gever which is actually this idea of a valiant man, of a strong man. And some even think it's about a, a man that's strong of faith. And this is the person that's embodying the community's feeling. So all that anguish, all that distress, all that frustration that's been being shared, he's taking that on and he's embodying it, embodying it but he adds something more. So go ahead and follow with me. We're just gonna read the first five verses. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. Now, if I were to keep reading, verses six to 16 is just him continually talking about what God has done to him. He says, he has, he has, he has, he has, he has. And it's 22 different verbs being heaped upon one another with God as the subject, doing something on us, on me, this man says. But it's interesting because although he'll use the he has, he has, he doesn't name God until verse 18. And so when you read this part, it reads a lot like chapter two, but it feels even more personal because it's an individual expressing this complete multi-layered collage of horror in his life. But I want you to look at verse 17. At verse 17, and we read this last week, he says, my soul's bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And so you see him expressing all of this very personally, which makes a lot of sense because our experiences of God when you're in relationship are always very personal. When you're experiencing his mercy and his love and his compassion, that's very personal. That's very near. And so when you're experiencing something wonderful or something tragic with God, it feels very personal. And you take that on and you see him using that language. But what you're finding here is that he sees God as the problem. And this is one of those unique aspects of suffering, especially for a believer, is because we believe that God is sovereign, that he's in control with total authority, and that nothing happens without his permission. So whether it's clear, like in this case, that God is causing our pain and suffering, or whether it seems to be happening from another source, if he's in charge, then he can do something about it, and he isn't, and that bothers us. And a non-believer Someone that doesn't believe in God, they can't blame God if they don't believe he exists. But a believer, we do blame God. And the bottom line becomes that yes, God is in control. Yes, he's letting it happen for reasons that are too great for us. That's the whole latter half of the book of Job. But no, that doesn't mean that that's how he wants this. 
It is possible for God to be in control of a broken situation and have a plan to fix it in the future. But for now, it still is broken and we feel it. But I want you to look at what he does in verse 19 and 20. He calls on God to pay attention, for God to remember what he's going through. Because he's saying, maybe if God is really paying attention, he's going to take action. He's going to do something to change this. But he starts with that, and then he turns to himself, and he focuses on his soul remembering. And when it says he continually remembers, the way they do that in the, in the Hebrew is they just say the same verb twice. So he's just saying, remember, rememberly. <laughs> Rather than saying continually, it's remember, rememberingly, which doesn't sound right in English. And I think he's just trying to say, I'm recalling this, and I'm sick and tired of it, and my soul remembers this. But then he realizes there's something else he can remember. And that's where you move into verse 21 and you see this shift. You see these roots, these truth roots, the the best stuff of this book coming out. Because look what it says. He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. And then he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And so in all these cycles of his suffering and frustration and anger, for a moment he can lift up his head from his pain and he can look around and he takes a moment to control his thoughts so he doesn't just wallow in all of his distress and he forces his view on God and he thinks and he considers What type of God has he revealed himself to be in the past and not just right now with what I'm going through? And he thinks about God's nature and he thinks about God's actions and he realizes God is good. God is loving. He has been, he is, and he always will be. And he uses two thick, um, profound terms that are very common within the Old Testament and they even get picked up dramatically and dynamically in the New Testament. And it's the word chesed, which means covenantal love or steadfast love and the word compassionate or mercy. And that first term, covenantal love, it's where God is committed and will always act in loyal kindness according to his character. He will always loyally act according to his character and in kindness. He has not made a complete end with humanity. He has not given up. He has not left them to just suffer. Even with rebellion and sin, God is still faithfully steadfast with us. And that's what we see with the cross. And what's funny is that line comes up in Exodus chapter 34 when God reveals his nature to Moses. And you have to remember that in that story, This is right after the people had screwed up in immense rebellion and sin with the golden calf. That's when God starts talking about his covenantal love. You've screwed up, but I am still faithful to you and my covenantal love still carries. But not only that, he's compassionate. It's this word racham, these deep feelings of love. That compassion never ends, he says. And so he's looking around and he's going, look what we still have. Our survival is a sign of God's faithfulness. And this helps him not to abandon prayer, to not stop crying out. But he's gonna still speak to his suffering body and soul 
to recognize that although he is tempted by his current circumstances to deny the goodness of the Lord, that is not truth. God is good. God continues to be good. Right now is hard, but God is good. And he deeply loves me. He deeply loves you. And I love what he says because he says, because of this, I can wake up to new things every morning. That every day presents a new opportunity to experience this reality. That you can wake up and have this access to what God is doing in his covenantal love and his compassion. And I like how he turns it from there and he just says this line that's a turn to praise and he says, great is your faithfulness. Which is this calling out and saying, God, you are persistent in your relationship with humanity. You love us so much that you do not relent from showing us love. And it's that type of phrase that we need to learn how to grab onto when we're going through all these situations. And I think that's why the writer is saying this. Because when you're getting frustrated with COVID and masks and governments and politics and your work and your job and your money and your schooling, with each of those, you can declare right to it, great is the Lord's faithfulness. 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 And we can keep saying that and declare it as a praise to him. Now, he doesn't just end there. He says, the Lord is my portion, and therefore I will hope in him, which is such a contrast to just a few verses before in verse 18. He says, my endurance has perished, and so has, so has my hope from the Lord. So how does he go from verse 18 to here and make such a drastic turn that he can say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I hope? And that term portion, it's a term that used to be given for the Levites, which is, which is a priestly tribe, that they didn't have any land. And so God was their portion. God was the one that was their personal possession because they didn't own anything out of all the tribes. He was the one that would sustain them. He was the one that was gonna be near to them. He was their highest treasure, even when things all seemed like they were thwarted. And the writer here is saying, God is my highest treasure. I have a portion with the king. And by doing that, I acknowledge that he's in control and he can deliver me. And my communion and my relationship is not lost because it cannot truly be touched by all the stuff happening in my life. The greatest part has not yet been taken from me. God's faithfulness, his love, his compassion. And we can declare those truths. And that's why our fill in the blank is so paramount for this whole series. Because it says God's promises change our cries. God's promises, these things that we're reading right now, they change our cries. They redirect where we're at in the cycle. They help us to move forward. Now, as we keep going, You'll look at verse 25 to 33, and he's gonna move into like a wisdom state, and he's gonna start giving us some practical ways to approach this. And so go ahead and follow with me. Verse 25, it says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence, which is argued among a lot of scholars on what that means. When it is laid on him, let him bury his face or put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope 
Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And so within this, he's trying to prompt us with a way of life. And he's saying, here's a healthy suffering posture. And what's weird is that the majority of the book has this loud wailing posture that's crying out and giving full vent to grief, which is appropriate and healthy. And we talked about that last weekend. But here there's this self-challenge to wait quietly. And quietly isn't just not speaking, it's about also not acting, not trying to take things into your own hands. To wait quietly and patiently for God to turn things around. So which is it? Patient silence is not what much of the book calls for, so why is it coming up here? And the book and this poem doesn't say. Therefore, we can kind of surmise that both of those are legitimate responses for our seasons of grief. If there needs to be venting to get out the poison of pain from our souls, then we need to scream it out and we need to go through the cycle. But if we're in a place where our emotions are spent and we don't know what to do next, then it may be a time to sit quietly and wait on God who is always active and always working. When you think about Jesus in the garden and being arrested and going and being tortured and being killed, Jesus displayed this submission, this silent waiting within his suffering. And so when we stir on these truths, they allow us, allow us to pause long enough to sit in this posture and wait for those expectant flashes of hope, of perspective. And we're able to seek him and his mercies rather than run. Even though his mercies are sometimes hard to find in what's going on or hard to recognize, as we look deeper, as we're trying to discern more, we find it. But we have to take a moment to talk about one small piece. And it's actually a big piece. It's the cause of suffering. Because for the people of Israel, this was part of God's judgment. And sometimes people try to argue this away because they don't, they want to rescue God from his sovereignty and being associated with things that are bad. And the comments that you find in Lamentation about God harming people are not always accurate because they're processed through human emotions, but they're not just metaphors. These things did happen to the people, and you could say that God did cause it to happen. I mean, technically, it was the sin of Israel that caused that to happen. But I know for a lot of people, it does feel like God is against us and that God is putting suffering, putting judgment into our lives. And I'll just say putting suffering. I don't mean putting judgment. In this case, for Israel, with the destruction of Jerusalem, with the fall of Judah, God was really against them. He was against their sin and he was bringing them down. And God's contract with Israel was that they had to obey him and remain in his blessing. You find that in Leviticus 26. You find that in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. And if they rebelled, they would be wiped out. And they did. They rejected him and they did their own thing. And this was the result. And this writer is accepting God's righteous justice in light of the hope of this mercy. But, for us reading this, Jesus has changed our position. Because thanks to Jesus' sacrifice and his death on the cross, many of us 
hopefully all of us, have become children of God. And that changes our status from enemy of God to child of God. And judgment is only for God's enemies. It is not for his children. Discipline is what God does with his children. And yes, for some of us, it feels the same, but it's not. The purpose of the discipline of God is much different than the judgment of God. If you read Hebrews 12, it talks about this in depth. But God is not against his believers. He is always for us, and so we do not have to question that at all. But the nation of Israel was different. They were a religious community that was in contract with God to do the things for his blessing and to avoid, avoid things that would cause punishment and wrath. But it was a mixed group of people. There was the true Israel that were the people that were seeking out, living a faith, following and chasing after God, and there, was the, there were those, that, and those who were also born Israel who called themselves God people but didn't want to follow any of his ways. And at times, they were simultaneously God's kids and God's enemy, which is why you would see so many prophecies about not only them receiving judgment, but also God's plan to restore. Their situation was a unique situation. And if this book of Lamentations is tied with Jeremiah, then we find that in the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31 to 33, we don't have this complication because we are God's children, washed by the blood of the new covenant. We've been born again into a new nature and because of that, we are no longer children of wrath. We are no longer people that have to fear that. Judgment isn't for us, but we can learn still from the writer how to engage in the hope we know of in God's merciful and loving work in Jesus. How do you draw near to that? And that's what takes us to the center of this entire chapter, which is verses 31 to 33. It's the literal center of this book where he says, the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He tells us the reason that we can sit silently waiting and hope that even though God was afflicting, he did not do this from his heart because God gets no pleasure from permitting or inflicting pain on people. Judgment is not the way he wants to relate to humanity, not at all. God wants to relate by who he is, his faithful love and his compassion, his innermost character. And that's an abundance that he wants to pour out. And so this is not his final word. The pe what people, the people were going through is not his final word. Sin will be covered and obedience will be given. And we know that because we can look back at what Jesus did on the cross to fulfill that. But let me just take you into one, one other piece, which is if you look at verses 34 to 39, and I'm not gonna read them, he's gonna talk about the injustices that are still happening, and he's gonna go back into mourning for those. And he's gonna make it really clear in those few verses that God is aware of injustice. He sees things even when we don't complain about it, and he actually sees the wrong things better. He knows more about how bad things are than we do. More than any news channel, more than any deep, really focused Google search. God knows because he is the source of all things. And knowing that humans sin and function apart from God, what the writer tries to say in this little section is why should someone complain if they don't like the consequence of their actions? And he's trying to help them understand God is a God of justice. He's full of mercy, he's full of compassion, 
and that's how he wants to function. But he is a God of justice. And often when people are going through suffering, we usually look for a way that's been, that things have been perpetrated on us. We want someone to blame. I struggle with this immensely. It's always everyone else's fault, never my fault. And sometimes it's almost too like general to say that things are, are just difficult and we want an enemy that we can picture to get mad at. And if you just consider how so many people have dealt with our present situations, instead of saying that disease and sickness and unsurety freaks us out and makes our lives miserable, we've chosen others to get angry at, people. And it's almost like we've forgotten that there is human greed, there is selfishness, there is human error. So in our natural desire to find someone or something specific to blame, we have to remember this truth. And this is what the writer tries to show us. If there is injustice, God knows it better than us and he will deal with it. People don't just get away with stuff. It feels like it. And the psalmists write about that all the time. However, we don't wanna just forget that God is watching. We wanna make sure to look at ourselves, Because sometimes the justice we're seeking so much might come right back at us. And that's where he goes on to say, and if you look at verse 40 and 41, he says, let us, us, test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to the God in heaven. Now verses 42 to 51, he's gonna cycle back in to a lament and go through language that he's been saying in all the other chapters about how bad things are and how many tears are being shed. But he's gonna remind himself that we have to look at ourselves because it might feel like God is distant or cut off from hearing us. And that's a feeling, but it's not our reality. And we have to ponder, how do we do that while also holding on to the hopeful and encouraging stuff that we just read moments earlier? And so we always have to look at ourselves and think, what needs to change? Because if the cause of our pain is someone else, then God is gonna deal with them. But that turns your frustration into prayer. But if your if you're suffering is just a situation of being in a broken world, you can pray to the Lord to bring creation under his rule fully and fix it. Yet it has to be according to his timing. His will be done, not Matt's will be done. Because Matt wants COVID done now. Matt wants the whole economic thing to be leveled out now. Matt wants the political stuff to end now. But it's not Matt's will, it's God's will. But at the same time, while God is working on all the external issues, we can look at this and realize that sometimes suffering reveals changes that need to take place in us. And when that change happens, it makes us a healthier person and we become more whole. And so silence and trust are incomplete as counsel unless conversion or change becomes part of our response as well. All of this helps us to move forward when things can change on our heart level. But let me take you to the end here, verses 52 to 66. He goes back into the cycle all again. But this time he remembers a time that he was delivered. I'm just gonna read some of the verses. He says, I've been hunted like a bird. This is verse 52. 
by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I'm lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. And then verses 59 to 66, he goes on to talk about how the bad guys are taking advantage of our situation and making it worse, but God, deal with them. You deal with them. And what I like is in this last little section, something has moved in his attitude and he sees how God's nature frames his life. No longer is God his enemy, like we saw in the beginning. Now there's the possibility that God will deliver. And what he does is he reflects back, and I believe the writer is reflecting back to a personal prior situation where things were horrible and they were terrible, and he cried out to God, and God heard, and God answered. How many of us have that kind of story in our lives? That we know we were in something thick, and we cried out, and we know God heard. And we watched him answer. Do we have a history with God to look back on and remind ourselves of how God really works and what God's really like? I'm absolutely sure we do. And it's vital in our times of suffering to refresh our souls with joy from those things that have happened before. God has done this. And so he can do it again. And so the salvation that this man has experienced, this valiant man, becomes a foretaste of the future for the community. If God has done this for me, he can do it for us. He can act in the stuff that's going on in our worlds, in our suffering, in our distress, in our frustration. And what I like is this leads him to more prayer. He's able to lift up his head and remember God, and it puts a fire in his spirit to start talking to God more and appealing to God for his defense because he can't solve all the problems right now, the man, but God can sort out the ones that need sorting starting today. And I wanna focus you on three specific lines he says there because verse 56, so important. He says, God heard his voice. I'm telling you, we need to hear that. Even when your prayers feel like they hit a ceiling and they're empty, God hears. Whether you speak it out loud or quietly. But not only that, if you look at verse 58, he says, Lord, you have redeemed my life. God acted to rescue. Those are powerful phrases. But I love what the end of 57 says the most because it says, you came near when I called on you, and you said, who said? God, do not fear. It's the only time in this entire book that God speaks directly to the person, or the writer, or the community. And look at what he says to us. Do not fear. We need to hear that so much right now. Don't fear. Proverbs 19, 23 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. One of the greatest devotional writers of all time, Oswald Chambers, says it this way. 
the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. It's about who our fear is directed towards. And again, I believe this strong man is looking at all this and he's saying, if God did this for me, he will do it for Israel. And if he does it for Israel, he does it for us. Because of what Jesus Christ did. So the hope that God is good, that God is present, that God is just, it motivates us to pray, to speak. May our process of suffering get us to places where we remember the nature of God and turn our hearts toward prayer. Like truly towards prayer. Not just I'll try to pray for that, but honest and sincere prayer. And may that shape our hope. Now, of course, this is not the end of the journey. We just med, read a middle chapter in an entire book. Chapters four and five will go back into the cycle. The point being that we just need to get, the point is not that we just need to get our head in the game and it will all go away. It's not a matter of pointing our hearts out once, praying once, and then suddenly we come alive in hope and everything's light and perfect all over again. What we're learning with this skill of lament is that we can cycle through our mourning and our grief and our distress and our frustration and we can give it full vent. But as we remember the God we know, the God we learn of, the God we experience, we can raise our heads and we can live according to the realities of God's work and nature. We can live knowing what he has done in Jesus Christ, what he has done by putting his Holy Spirit within us and having him near. We can walk in freedom and not fear. And from that, we can look forward to the future, a future of shalom, peacemakers. And we can seek to be people that create that. And we don't shortcut the healing process, but we allow for it to become more robust, more meaningful, more transformative. And so our prayer for this church, for you that are here in the room, you that are watching online, for anybody that comes into contact with this message or this book of Lamentations, we would love for this time, this weekend, this point in our lives to be our chapter three, our interrupt, that we can break the cycle and we can all watch hope rise together. And we can declare back and forth all over the place, great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. And to see what we are becoming as God moves us because God doesn't leave things the way they are. He's not just a God, a God that creates from nothing, but he's a restorer. He's a renewer. He's a, someone who reorients, who recreates. And what you are gonna be learning as we move into the next part of our year of becoming the book of Nehemiah is he's a God that rebuilds. And that's what we're gonna to do together. And so let me pray for you. And I know for some of you here in this room, that song, very classic hymn from 1902, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is going through your head.
the steadfast love of our Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you for being a God that your love and your compassion and your faithfulness is so large that you never relent from showing it to us. God, open our eyes, loosen our lips to not just declare what we're going through and why we don't like it, but to declare what we know of you, what you have done, and the hope that gives us. God, may you put words of worship and praise and sincerity on the lips and hearts of every person. And may we draw so close to you as we realize that you are near to us. And so we love you, and we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen.